between the wisdom passed down by ancient healing traditions, anecdotal experience, and modern clinical trials, one thing is clear. Mushrooms are medicinal powerhouses. And I finally found a brand, a product, a company that I feel really aligns with all of my research and understanding when it comes to the medicinal properties of mushrooms, and that is Alchemy Mushrooms. They grow their mushrooms in California on organic mushroom farms. They keep the whole mushroom in their supplements, and they actually blend mycelium and fruit body in their mushroom powders and capsules to give you the best of both worlds. You can learn more at Alchemy Mushrooms. That's A-L-C-H-E-M-I, alchemymushrooms.com. Use the discount code MUSHROOMHOUR for 20% off your order. Alchemy with an I, mushrooms.com. Hi there. Welcome to Mushroom Hour. Today on Mushroom Hour, we are humble hosts to the talented Sigrid Jacob, president of the New York Mycological Society. Sigrid only discovered fungi within the last several years, but her intense passion quickly catapulted her into the forefront of community science. She has played a leading role in rebooting the North American Mycoflora Project and transforming that national organization into the Fungal Diversity Survey, known as Fundus. She is an accomplished community science facilitator, providing resources for at-home genetic sequencing to allow those with no background in biochemistry to successfully extract and amplify DNA. In her non-mushroom life, Sigrid is a 55-year-old independent brand strategist who lives in Brooklyn, is mother to a 17-year-old, and holds degrees in philosophy, psychology, and photography. Really, a modern renaissance woman who shares the tools with which to examine fungal diversity for the layman. I'm excited to learn about how we all can contribute in putting together this seemingly endless tree of fungal diversity. Sigrid, thank you so much for joining us on the Mushroom Hour. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. I'm such a fan of the show. Oh, that's really humbling because I'm a huge fan of your work uh, and the impact that you're having in community science and community mycology. And of course, the thing we all want to know is how did you get interested in fungi and mushrooms? Uh, because I know from your introduction there, you've only been into this just for the past several years, which is really inspiring because you've reached pretty lofty heights in terms of your contributions to community science. So how did you get interested in mushrooms and fungi? Well, I should have been introduced to it at a very early age because the first thing my parents did with me is like schlep me into the forest every single weekend because they're uh, my father was a nursery man, my mother a gardener, he was a hunter. My whole family have always spent a lot of time in the woods. So I would love to say, like, you know, I've been interested in fungi from a very early age, but I never saw them. I was just sort of blind to them. And I've always had a passing interest in them later. I had mushroom books, but I always lived in big cities, uh, London, Amsterdam, Berlin, New York. And I just thought there's no fungi. It's a big city. Why would there be any fungi there? And then I want to say about five, six years ago, I saw some in my local park and I became curious and I joined a mushroom club and then I realized they're all around us. I've just literally been blind to them. So now I'm obviously kicking myself. <laughs> That's the one thing everyone wishes is we knew about mushrooms and fungi earlier. Could have started on that path earlier. And you just brought up something that I'm always blown away by, which is how much fungal diversity there is even in urban environments. 
So, you know, as a quick overview, and you can go any direction with this that you'd like, mm -hmm. but what is that picture of fungal diversity in urban environments? How underexplored are places like uh, New York City, where you are, or just different cities around the world even? That's such a great question. Uh, because I used to think there's a limit to the amount of fungi that we're going to find in New York City. And the New York City Mycological Society always had this target of, let's find a thousand species. That was sort of the magic number. And, you know, we sort of thought like, well, once we reach a thousand, we've pretty much capped it. Um, we reached that number a couple of years ago. And now that I've started sequencing so many of my finds, I'm realizing there's literally undescribed rare, unusual species all around us. We pretty much find one or two of them on every single walk. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if there was many more uh, thousands of uh, species to be found if we only look hard enough, especially if we look at smaller ascomycetes or little brown mushrooms and so on. So I think there's so much undocumented biodiversity in this city and presumably all other large cities. And then what kind of role does the citizen mycologist or citizen scientist, and we can even talk about that word, because I know prior to the interview, you said uh, community science, community mycology is really more accurate. But how much of a role does that community have to play in mapping this fungal diversity? Well, I mean, there's about a thousand professional mycologists in uh, the United States, and a lot of them are studying, um, you know, pharmaceutical applications of fungi or crop diseases. So there's a very small uh, sort of professional contingent documenting biodiversity, and it's really up to community scientists, just or regular people to do that, because uh, there's nobody else doing it. So it pretty much entirely depends on people like you and me to, to do that job. Well, and what do those tools look like for the amateur? And I say that in the best sense of the word as someone who mm -hmm. loves to do this. You know, what are the basic tools that the amateur can use to contribute to really this monumental task. And I appreciate you just laying out that framework because how could a thousand people hope to map, you know, the potentially millions of species of fungi all around us, at least tens of thousands. Uh, so what, what are the basic tools then at the amateur's disposal to participate in this kind of massive work of mapping fungal diversity? Yeah, it's so beautifully easy to do that. There's two tools. iNaturalist is one of them and Mushroom Observer is the other one. A lot of people, when they see a beautiful mushroom, they put it on Instagram or they put it on Facebook. And it's just as easy to put it on iNaturalist. Um, take a couple of good photographs, not just off the top of the cap, but also of the gills and the stipe, and put that on iNaturalist. And that's literally all you have to do. You don't have to know what it is. Just give people a little bit of a sense of where you found it, and somebody in the community will figure out what it is. And you've just contributed enduring data on distribution and diversity of fungi for your specific environment. And that data can be used by scientists. It can be used for conservation efforts. And that's literally all it took. It's like a 20-second thing that you know all of us and any of us can do as we walk through our parks. I think it's something that every... It definitely any mushroom forager needs to get used to. If you're already out in the woods looking for mushrooms, it's a habit you need to. I'm trying to do that more and more to remember to, yeah, I should take a photo. And you can take a photo through iNaturalist instead of your camera. And so right there, you've captured the picture for yourself, but you've also just contributed to iNaturalist yeah, with a couple observations. So I, I absolutely love that tool. And I'm really glad that you encourage so many people to use it. And how does that community then, this massive data gathering that hopefully is kind of continually swelling, how does that contribute to a project like the Fungal Diversity Survey? And maybe that necessitates a little explanation of what the Fungal Diversity Survey is 
in terms of, you know, its role in kind of collating all these community mycology observations? Yeah, so I mean, Fungal Diversity Survey is a new organization that came out in the North American Microflora Project. The North American Microflora Project was very much just focused on sequencing the sort of uh, microflora or the fungi of North America. And obviously sequencing is expensive, it requires a lot of people, you know, people's expertise. So they decided to broaden it out and make it more inclusive of other kinds of contributions, including iNaturalist. Because if you have hundreds or thousands of people all contributing high quality observations in a national project, that database starts to become really useful. You can analyze, uh, for example, distribution trends for specific species. You can analyze whether a species is becoming more common or more rare, whether it's a sort of leaving certain areas because of uh, climate change and you can map you know like threatened habitats like red you know certain areas of redwood forest to see how the composition of fungi is changing but the you know the challenge with iNaturalist obviously is like this I think 2.7 million observation of fungi in North America alone and a lot of those observations are not great and I'm not trying to shame anyone I've, I've contributed plenty of crummy observations myself but what if there was a database that was just high quality observations that was vetted by identifiers that gave people tips on, you know, what they might have found. They, they might give them tips on how to take better photographs. And uh, then what if we uh, use that data to actually analyze some of those trends I just talked about? I just want to very briefly mention that eBirds is a much, much, much larger database. And that database has been used to fuel hundreds of scientific papers about how bird uh, distribution is changing and so on. So that's pretty much what we're trying to do for fungi, to create this enormous high-quality database of good observations that can be used for all kinds of exciting things. And functionally, how does that work? I mean, the Fungal Diversity Survey, and I appreciate you making the distinction because I use the Mycoflora Project and Fungal Diversity Survey interchangeably. And you were the one that kind of told me that, no, it's transitioned. And I know you played a leading role in that. But functionally, what does that look like? I mean, are you guys having to comb through all those iNaturalist observations, pick the best of the best, and build a database from there? What, what does that look like? Yeah, no, that if we had more time, we would totally do that. But right now, we are essentially just building a, an opt-in community of people. Like hundreds and hundreds of people have opted into the project, and it's a project you can join on iNaturalist. You literally just find it and then join and then start contributing your pick, your observations, which just means tagging them, literally adding them to our project. And as soon as you add them to our project, and it's very easy to do, and you can take your whole backlog of observations and easily add them, somebody will begin to comb through them for quality, but also for identification. And then what is the role that the Fungal Diversity Survey has in educating people to become better natural history observers and documenters. Uh, talk about that a little bit, because I think that's really interesting, kind of empowering that community mycology. Totally. So there's several places where we do that. First of all, on our website, we have tons of tips on how to create better observations, little videos and stuff. But a lot of people won't even make it to our website. So on the actual iNaturalist project page, there's a very clear guidelines on what's a good observation and what's not a good observation. And then we have a great sort of triage curator her name is Sam, and she'll actually write back to people and say like, hey, this would have been a great, really great observation, but you didn't give us any information on the habitat or the substrate or the host or whatever. So here is how to make an, a better observation in the future. So it's a little bit of, you know, people self-educating and a little bit of us sort of giving them tips. 
I love that, facilitating people to make better observations, cultivate a better database. And I hinted at it that you played a leading role in this. What was your role and continued role with the Fungal Diversity Survey? Uh, well, it was during the pandemic days when everybody had a little bit too much time in their hand. And they reached out to me because I'm a, a brand strategist in, in real life. And they were trying to rebrand. They were trying to you know, change their name from um, North American Microflora Project to something else. And I didn't even know what that name was going to be. But, you know, what it really was, was much more than a name change. It was sort of a change in focus because they realized that getting enough funds to fund just uh, doing DNA sequencing was never going to be a possibility because it needs a lot of money and it also needs a lot of people's times. And that just increasingly wasn't viable. So instead of just going like, hey, well, that sucks. Uh, we could just close this thing down. They went like, you know, why don't we do something that's more accessible to more people using all the amazing work that's already happening, you know, with iNaturalist and corral it and make it more useful for science. And obviously, one of the outcomes is that diversity database. And one of the other outcomes is a real focus on fungal conservation, because I can talk about, you know, fungal conservation until the cows come home. But that's sort of an area that needs much more community science contributions, because that's Yet another thing that just the experts can't figure out and can't solve for by themselves. And this is something I'm always curious about. And I know so many people, when you start talking about fungal diversity, we all get passionate about the idea of there are fungal species disappearing. How are we protecting them? Obviously, we need to know where they are to know to protect them. But pulling from your experience, what framework is there in terms of fungal conservation? Because we all know about endangered species, mm -hmm. you know, there's red lists, it all kind of blends together. And I know it's much more codified when it comes to flora and fauna, but much less so when it comes to funga. So what is that conservation framework, as far as you can tell at this point, kind of in science at large or in society at large? Right. And I mean, let's make a distinction between here in Europe, for example, because in Europe, the protection of fungi is much more advanced in the sense that whenever, for example, there's a, you know, a development or, you know, when an area is being developed or when people talk about protecting certain habitats, fungi tend to get taken into consideration. They have a little bit more of a lobby just because there's more, more data and, and a bit more interest in the United States. You know, if you look at all the conservation efforts that are going on in the world in terms of our national parks and other habitats, there's usually a sort of lobby, for example, birds or for reptiles or for certain kinds of trees. And that will all factor in, for example, in, you know, whether an area can be logged or whether an area can be developed. But there's just never any consideration given for fungi at all. And the, the UICN Global Red List Initiative that you mentioned has definitely tried to change that. So for fungi to get onto the UICN Global Red List, they need to go through an assessment and only once they've been assessed do they get sort of assigned a, a status you know it's extremely threatened it's extinct it's you know it's plentiful but only just over 400 fungi have actually been properly assessed so far and compare that to almost 70,000 plants or animals so there's just very little knowledge about relative rarity or commonness of, of most fungi there's just almost no data it's sort of a white space on the map. And that's the big opportunity is to get more fungi onto the USN global red list. And then also obviously feed other more local conservation efforts of which there's not very many. 
Well, and you could see how something like iNaturalist, where you're mapping fungal diversity from observations, you start getting that data. But I would think fungi are unique in that there's this genetic component where something might look similar. And so it might be lumped together in terms of macro observation, but when you do the genetics, you might find out one is so much more rare than the other, genetically distinct. So how do we overcome that issue in conservation, understanding the genetics? Basically, how important is it then to integrate fungal genetics into any kind of data gathering when it comes to conservation efforts and then applying that to any kind of conservation framework? You've put the hammer right on the nail. It's totally, really, really challenging because there's over, I want to say, 5 million fungi. You know, it's a, a tremendous diversity, much more than plants or animals. And a lot of them, like you say, are very similar. They're also very evanescent. You know, fungi only pop up you know, they only develop fruit bodies, a very short part of the life cycle. Um, a lot of them are really small. So it's right. really hard to sort of evaluate them for uh, scarcity when so many of them, like you said, look similar, but might be ge- genetically diverse. So I think the first easy goal for conservation is to focus on the fungi who are easy to distinguish, who are a little bit more unique in terms of their morphology that even like an amateur can pick them out of a lineup and say like, hey, this is definitely this mushroom and not that mushroom. Because as soon as you get into certain kinds of species or certain kinds of genera, like coordinarius or in the inocerbaceae or whatever, it gets really tricky really fast. And just from, from a picture, it's often very hard to say it's this species or that species. So let's start with the stuff that's a little bit easier and work our way you know, forward. For anyone listening, I'm sure they can see how macro observations, uploading things into iNaturalist, even working with the Fungal Diversity Survey project on iNaturalist all seems very approachable. Genetics still seem like the mystery, something out of reach for the amateur in a lot of ways. So tell us how you got interested in that process and then maybe how you established your own at-home protocols for extracting and amplifying DNA and sequencing. Sure. I mean, I think it starts the way it starts with almost anyone. You come across a really intriguing mushroom and you go like, what the heck is that? And you go through your field guide and nothing even looks similar. And you post it on the internet and people just say like, oh, I don't know what that is. So you go like, what the heck is it? And obviously DNA sequencing promises to give an answer. And, you know, it's not really accessible to the average person. I mean, fund is used to grant sequences, but then I, you know, saw videos by Alan Rockefeller. I really want to call out that this is such a community effort and it's a very generous community. People like Alan Rockefeller, a friend of mine, Craig Trester, uh, Damon Tai, you know, those are people who've been doing this stuff for quite a while and they've been very generous with their knowledge. And I was just, I basically just bugged a lot of people and said like, hey, can you explain this to me? And I watched a lot of videos over and over and over again and essentially sort of cobbled together my own protocol and, you know, it actually started working. And there's Facebook groups that will hold your hand as you go through this sort of process. And then I developed my own protocol for how to do the DNA sequencing that clearly borrows from lots of other people's experiences. And DNA sequencing, it's really simple at its very base. What you have to do is you just have to try and smash that DNA out of a cells because DNA doesn't want to just leave. It's usually pretty tightly wetted. So you have to crack it out. You use heat, you use chemicals, you use time, you use force to sort of get it out. And then once you've got the DNA out, all you have to do is amplify it. 
because usually you just have tiny bits of DNA and that's not enough. So you essentially want to multiply like by a, literally a billion times. And you do that with a small device that's called a thermal cycler that essentially just heats and cools your DNA and you add a couple of things to it like primer and master mix. And that essentially just duplicates two pieces of DNA into four, into eight, into 16 until you suddenly have billions and billions. And then you test it, you know, it's called a process called gel electrophoresis. If you want to, you don't have to test it. And then you send it off to a lab. It, it just costs a, a couple of bucks and they will translate it into like a long string of A's and C's and G's and T's. And if you put that into a website called Blast, which is just Google for sequences, it pretty much just spits out a bunch of other observations that are very similar to yours. So. I have no background in biology or chemistry or any of that stuff. It's like cooking. You literally just follow a recipe and it, it works. It's beautiful and it's so much fun. Well, and your at-home protocols, you know, what kind of equipment are you using? And I'm sure maybe you can direct us to, you know, if there's a website or anything where the protocols are located, but just in each stage of that process, you know, where you're crushing up, maybe adding chemical solvents or something to break out the DNA and then you're amplifying it. And you mentioned primers, of course, which are critical and then master mix, which I'm less familiar with, and then doing the electrophoresis. So what kind of at-home equipment are you using and maybe where are you sourcing some of these tools or reagents? Uh-huh. So, I mean, the, the one resource that I did generate in this sort of desperate uh, moment of boredom during the pandemic is uh, a four-part YouTube series, which is called uh, Fungal PCR at Home. It's just literally me sort of like explaining how I do it. And attached to that is, is my protocol, my description. So if anyone's interested and hasn't already, doesn't already have a protocol, that's a good place to start. But in terms of equipment, it's pretty simple. For the first process where you're just sort of cracking out the DNA from the cells, you need, um, you know, sodium hydroxide, which is a couple of bucks on the internet. You need a bunch of... Um, just so plastic consumables into which to put uh, uh, your mushroom pieces. And then what I use is a, a centrifuge because you want to spin down uh, the, sort of the bits of mushroom that you've, you've got in your solutions so that the, the debris falls to the bottom. So you need a centrifuge. And then for the second stage, you need a thermal cycler. And the thermal cycler is, like I said, it's just a small cooker and cooler. It's literally just sort of an aluminum block that can either be heated or be cooled down. And it's a simple little device. And then for the last part, the gel electrophoresis part, you just need, um, I guess, a gel electrophoresis setup, which I don't quite know how to describe, except that it, it sends a current through a gel and it pulls the DNA through and you can begin to see bands if you had a successful reaction and no band if you didn't. Uh, so you don't really need to centrifuge if you're trying to wing it, but I want to say the core piece of the whole enterprise is a thermal cycler, and you can right. buy them new, but you can buy them used on eBay. So, I mean, if, if you have a thermal cycler and a few chemicals, you, you're almost off to the races. And in terms of how to get your re reagents, primers, there's one place called IDT that mix primers to order, any primer you like. There's a place called the Odin, which will happily send, sell you a lot of consumables and chemicals to amateurs. You don't have to be a researcher. And uh, most of it's pretty cheap, I want to say. I I've actually calculated the cost for one uh, sequence, and I pay just under five bucks all in. But that's because um, I only do 
a forward reaction, not a, not a forward and a reverse reaction. But yeah, so basically for five bucks, you can sequence that, uh, you know, unknown mushroom that you've just found. You just make that seem so approachable. And I was hoping that by teasing that out a little bit, and you did, you made it seem like, okay, I could go get these parts and I could probably do this. And I would watch Sigrid's videos over and over again on YouTube. And I could probably figure this out and start sequencing fungi in my area. And so how do efforts like that, community scientists and mycologists all around the country, amateurs who start doing genetic sequencing, how does that build into efforts like Fundus or like any other parent kind of diversity effort? How do those genetic sequences get built into that? So that's a fantastic question and something I'm quite passionate about because like science only moves forward if we have lots and lots of good sequences of fungi. And obviously there's a ton of academics working to generate some of these sequences. And whenever people do that, they put it into something called GenBank. And GenBank is essentially this gigantic database of every kind of sequence, you know, humans, fish, or whatever, including lots and lots of fungi sequences. And the more data there is in that database, the more we know about fungi, the more we can sort of disentangle all the family trees, and the more we can like do conservation efforts that are based on reliable facts. And, you know, we can't just rely on scientists to populate these databases because, A, you know, they're constrained by grants and budgets and areas of focus. And the, the thing about a lot of the sequences from scientists is they don't have any microscopy attached. They don't have any photography attached. They don't have good geolocation attached. And I want to say that when citizens or community scientists generate these sequences, they're usually attached to an INAT sequence. And there's a really rich amount of data that, that goes with these INAT observations that give you much more information about that specimen than most scientific databases. So I really, really think that uh, community scientists have a massive role to play in making GenBank bigger and better and more useful to science and conservation. And there's no asterisk by the observation or the sequence, oh, this is a community scientist who did it at home. Are they treated any differently in the GenBank database? Well, the, the best part about GenBank is they call everybody doctor. They always go like, well, thank you, Dr. Jacob, for submitting your... <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, no, they just assume that whoever contributes is a professional scientist and not an amateur, which is kind of a very sweet. But no, absolutely, it doesn't get asterisk because a good sequence is a good sequence. And obviously, making sure that what you're putting in there is high quality is really important because you could just name your sequence anything and it could be totally wrong and that would be confusing. And the challenge is already that a lot of, a lot of stuff in GenBank is mislabeled. So you really have to hold yourself to a really high standard to make sure uh, that, you know, the name you put on the sequence is actually correct. And if, if you don't know, if you're correct, you'll just have to put it in at the genus level or somewhere that's more general instead of trying to get to species level. So yeah, you, you have to hold yourself to a high standard because otherwise you're kind of muddying the waters for everybody else. Yeah. An interesting kind of parameter you just laid out there that the baseline GenBank data isn't always a hundred percent set or accurate. So I know, and I know that reading genetic information, when you get a sequence back, that's a task in of itself to try to identify, you know, based on the percentage of match where it should go phylogenetically, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's an art as well as a science. And oftentimes it involves reading some of the scientific literature and really doing due diligence on, on that particular species. 
And for you, as you started getting into this world of genetics and phylogeny, how did this change your outlook on fungi and mushrooms? Because it sounds like you didn't start, you know, oh, I want to get into fungal genetics, but you quickly ended up there. How did that change your relationship with these organisms and, you know, your perspectives? Well, I mean, you know, before, I think I just saw fungi as these incredibly beautiful and weird organisms, but I never thought about their relationships. You know, I didn't think about them as having family trees and being subject to the pressures of evolution and being pulled apart by the fact that, you know, the continents were drifting apart or that certain areas went through ice age and, you know, certain species adapted and certain species didn't and and so on. And as soon as you learn about genetics and as soon as you look at phylogenetic trees you really have to think in terms of those much bigger pictures of you know the history of of those species and the history of of mycology and it just gives you a completely different perspective and it makes you ask completely different questions so as a a complete non-scientist that was very eye-opening to me yeah i think it informs really unique perspectives for people and i would imagine even just the process of working with the reagents and doing that kind of scientific process changes you as well. I mean, changes kind of different aspects of your life even. Well, I never saw myself as a scientist. You know, I didn't finish high school. I've always been super self-conscious about my education, especially as far as science is concerned. So the idea that somebody like me actually is doing some science and doing, you know, biochemistry and stuff at home, it definitely changed my you know, how I thought about myself and it boosted my self-esteem in, in interesting ways because I just never thought of myself. I never thought I could do that kind of thing. A rebrand for Sacred, maybe more as a scientist. Totally. Yes. <laughs> a rebrand of identity. Well, everyone listening, I'm sure, wants to start doing these projects. You know, I start envisioning, you know, a local area. If I could just set some geographic region and start really going in on the fungal diversity. And you've done that. Uh, and that's actually something that, so funny, my mother sent me an article that you were in about a project you were doing there uh, in the Greenwood Cemetery. Indeed, yes. Tell us about that project, maybe how it got started, and what that project entails. So I, I'm very lucky in that I live very close to an amazing cemetery, because when pe- people think cemeteries, they think of boring or like vaguely sad sort of little neighborhood uh, plots. but Greenwood Cemetery is almost 500 rolling acres. It's almost 200 years old. It's amazingly beautiful. It has lots of little mini habitats within it. And I visit it every sing- every other day. And, um, you know, on my many, many wanders there, I tend to always document the fungi. And I've, you know, documented well over 200. And it's just a place of respite for me. It's where I do my best thinking. It's meditation. It's exercise. It's education. It's just a fantastic place. And uh, I guess it just started with me putting all these fungi and I not. And then I found somebody else who was just as passionate about fungi of Greenwood Cemetery as myself and my collaborator, Potter Palmer. And together we went like, what do we do with all of this? You know, could this be a way of engaging the local community in fungi? Uh, because like every single other green space, Greenwood Cemetery has a website and it tells you about the mammals and the birds of Greenwood or the plants and trees of Greenwood. But nobody ever talks about fungi. We went like, you know, what if you could make fungi a thing? What if you could, you know, have a large educational website 
on fungi? What if we could do guided mushroom walks? You know, what would it look like if we got the local community excited and engaged about fungi? So we built this project and Greenwood, to their credit, was absolutely supportive. The head of horticulture was amazing. She built a website for us. And now if you go on Greenwood's website, there's a very large interactive fungi website that tells you exactly what to find, where to find it, interactive maps and everything. We've done micro blitzes. We've got a, you know, a bunch of guided tours planned. In any case, it's just uh, been an opportunity to, to get more people excited. And, you know, the fact that the style section of the New York Times would be interested in it just tells you that we've reached peak fungi. I think collectively, we've all got, gotten a little obsessed with fungi right now, and it's clearly sort of where the zeitgeist is going. But that's fine with me. I mean, you know, I just want to get more people interested and engaged. So, yes. That's the mission for so many people. And so seeing that zeitgeist take hold, I think is incredible. And, you know, when you broke down that project to me, especially with, you know, their receptivity, the horticulturalist building you a website, making interactive maps, I just immediately thought, oh my, I mean, imagine state parks in California where you have these little placards and website information about the Pollock Pines and yeah, the mammals that live there. Imagine if there was a similar placard about fungi and why isn't there? So it just in terms of how you organize this, I mean, did it mainly come together because they were receptive and built organically from there? I mean, what are kind of the tenets of how you've organized this project so maybe we can extrapolate it into our own areas? I mean, my sort of secret mission was always to build this other project that somebody else should hopefully copy. I wanted it to sort of almost be a blueprint of what, you know, a good fungi website would look like in the context of other urban green spaces, other parks and so on. And it's really just three pieces. One of it's education on like, what is a mushroom and why are they important? What are the mushroom lifestyles? The second one is like, here are the local fungi and here's how to identify them. And maybe even, you know, here, here's a map that you can explore to figure out where exactly they grow and see some actual observations. And then the last part is like, and here is some activities and events that you can participate in, whether it's contributing to, you know, the Instagram feed of that green space or whether it's to participate in a walk or a lecture. Um, so yeah, it's definitely meant to be both the education, the interactivity and the learning about specific species and then sort of how to participate and get engaged. I mean, if other people would copy that, I would be so happy. And I would imagine it took you and your collaborator to kind of lead the charge. And has it taken on a life of its own at this point? Are you guys very much still at the forefront kind of organizing, organizing micro blitzes and all that kind of thing? Or what does that look like now? Uh, well, it's still me and Potter doing all the work. But the thing is, to be to be honest, we only launched it uh, just after New Year's this year. So we haven't oh, wow. even like gotten the full benefit of a, of a, of a full mushroom season yet. But there's a lot of interest and a lot of membership of our iNaturalist project. So get activating those members and hopefully getting some of them to step up a little bit more is definitely part of the objective because obviously, you know, I'm busy with other stuff and I can babysit a lot of projects, but it'd be nice to sort of pass that along to other people as well. Well, and if people have their community of mycophiles, wherever they are, their mycological club, friends you forage with, this would sound like a project that anyone could set up if you have a park that you guys love or an area wild space that everybody loves to go to this would seem to be the perfect thing to kind of build as part of this bigger genetic diversity picture we're talking about but also give you something to build community around i i just 
love the idea and it makes me want to go out and do it now. And from doing the work that you guys have done, what have you uncovered there about Greenwood Cemetery in terms of fungal diversity? What have you guys found? What is that picture starting to look like? It's so interesting because like Greenwood, like a lot of cemeteries, is very manicured. You know, there's a lot of lawn lawn mowing going on and it's pretty neat. You know, it's not a wild space. And my first expectation was always like, eh, it's going to be pretty boring in terms of fungi. But it's not so at all. I mean, we've we've documented, I think, approaching 300 different species of fungi, which is amazing. And we've uh, documented a bunch of fungi that are new to North America last year. Uh, one of them was only ever been found in Finland, in, in Nosibi, in one location in Finland and in Greenwood Cemetery. And the other one was a satharella that's only ever been found in Sweden, in some boggy meadow. And the other place it's been found is in Greenwood Cemetery. We found West Coast fungi there that sort of hitchhike with Douglas firs to the East Coast. So there's all kinds of weird and wacky stuff where you go like, okay, how did that happen? And, uh, you know, these are species that are, you know, not unique to North America. And you go just like, why did they pick the cemetery? Um, so yeah, so many questions, but so much excitement as well, because, you know, it's definitely not boring. We're discovering new species there all the time. And I was going to ask if the cemetery is a unique habitat, but I have my mental picture of a much smaller space. So this is a 500 acre space. It may not be like your average cemetery, but do you think cemeteries are kind of unique habitats for fungi? I I mean, not for the obvious reason, because people go, always go like, oh, well, maybe they're just decomposing the corpses. But right. obviously, <laughs> those corpses are six foot deep and it's an anaerobic environment. And, you know, you'd have to have very large mycelium to go that deep. I think maybe uh, what makes them good uh, environments for fungi is like they're relatively undisturbed. Because if I look at my local park, you know, there's picnics and dogs and people and all lots of trash. Um, and it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of trampling going on. Whereas in the cemetery, it's so very lightly used and people tend to stick to the paths and it's a very quiet area. And, um, this particular cemetery also has a lot of old trees and it's quite shady and it has a lot of hills. So it creates all these sort of micro environments. But I think the old trees more than anything is probably the main attraction as far as fungi are concerned. Really interesting. I, I love that you, I love showcasing this project because I think it's something that all of us can do to contribute. So really exciting. I highly recommend anyone go to the website. You can just type in Greenwood Cemetery. I did Greenwood Cemetery NY. It comes up right away. You can see the findings, get some inspiration. And I've already got an inkling. I want to reach out to a park in our local area and maybe try something similar. So thank you for leading the way on that, showing us the way on that. Uh, But something I did want to mention is something I did want to make sure to cover is your new role as president of the New York Mycological Society. What does that feel like to be, as someone who is a self-proclaimed amateur, you know, without the background in sciences necessarily, what does that feel like to be the president and, and elected the president by really peers in mycology and, you know, such a dynamic and legendary mycological society? Yeah, it's super humbling and very intimidating. And I'd like to not even think about it. Um, and uh, But uh, well, I think one of the secrets of these sort of senior roles is like nobody really wants to do them. So, you know, like if you're willing to st- step up and do the admin, I think people are usually more than grateful to, to have you do them. But yeah, obviously, I'm stepping into some very large footsteps. My predecessor, Tom Bigelow, did amazing work. You, you, you spoke to Eugenia Bone, which is another 
one of our great presidents. And obviously, John Cage, the avant-garde composer, was, was the founder. So it's definitely a club with an interesting history. And uh, it's been super humbling. But obviously, you know, as you perhaps would expect, I have some plans. I have points of view on what a modern mushroom club should be doing or could be doing. And, um, you know, I'm excited to try them out. So, yeah. Well, and what are some of those ideas? Because I know this is relatively recent, so we can't expect you necessarily to have an illustrious set of changes and things already made. But maybe give us an overview, I guess, of where the club is now, some of the events, gatherings, meetings that happen. And then what are some of your ideas for the longer term that you hope to see that will help augment uh, the New York Mycological Society? Yes. So first of all, I'm so super proud of what the club has achieved, particularly during the pandemic, because a lot of mushroom clubs just went dark. They went like, well, okay, we can't be doing what we're doing, like going on walks. So let's just, right. uh, you know, close up shop for a little bit. Our club under the leadership of Tom Bigelow did the exact opposite. We scheduled almost weekly lectures of, you know, really interesting scientists and other contributors, 35 of them over the course of a year. So there was some fantastic learning that happened. So many exciting, interesting lectures. We also did weekly Zoom sessions where people shared their fungi, and that brought together a community we've never before assembled. Suddenly, we've got people from all over the state who were never able to make it to an actual ID session. We had people from California and from, from all over still kind of coming to our identification sessions, and it was really nice to get expertise from all these new sources. So it, w it was just also a nice support group, you know, in the middle of all this direness to to have something fun to look forward to so at this point the club has almost a thousand members which is ridiculously huge huge yeah and uh, and usually like like you said like i try and do things before i talk about them but you know i'm also sort of excited to be able to try a few new things and i have three areas of focus and i want to say one area of focus is definitely diversity because it's no secret that the mushroom community isn't always as diverse as it could be. And that's not for lack of, it's not because people are hostile or insular. It's just people assume that diversity will happen once people discover them. And that's just not how it works. There's so many communities who could really get into fungi, but just don't know about them. And if they know about them, they're probably a little intimidated by the idea of a mushroom club. I mean, we're called the New York Mycological Society. It took me several months to summon up the courage to join a walk because I thought like, oh my right. God, this is so scientific, you know, it's called mycological, you know, will they accept a normal model like myself? So if I'm intimidated, you know, I can only imagine how intimidating we, we might be seeming to, you know, other communities. And the thing is, we do visit 22 different parks in New York City, and New York City is this amazing sort of patchwork of local communities. So inviting more of those communities in and sort of doing more outreach it's definitely one of the things I want to do. That's number one. And um, the other one is to do with DNA sequencing, because, you know, people always ask me, how much does it cost to set up a home lab? And the answer is like, well, it's cheaper than you think. It, it can be done for under a thousand bucks, but that's still a lot of money for people. And it also, you know, it might not be right for everybody and nobody wants to just buy a lab to just find out that maybe it's not what they enjoy doing. So a, a borrowable lab is sort of like a library of lab equipment that people can take out and try uh, and do DNA sequencing at home, obviously with workshops, showing them how to do it and so on. 
is definitely something else I want to try. So I want to spread uh, DNA sequencing to more of our members. And then the third thing is like the clubs maintain the database of observations for like 13 years or, or possibly even longer. That's really, really valuable data. Obviously, it's not an iNaturalist, but we have long lists. And uh, there's definitely um, ways of using that in the service of conservation because you see patterns, you know, fruiting windows of fungi are expanding. We see new species that, you know, are coming from warmer climates. We might be losing certain species. So analyzing some of the data that we already have and then making sure that going forward, as many of our members as possible use iNaturalist. I mean, those would be things I, I definitely want to, you know, dip a toe in and, you know, build excitement around. But right now it's all just talk. So call me in a year and see if I've been able to implement <laughs> any of it. Well, luckily, in that mycological society, you've got some very talented members. I know the illustrious Craig Trester has done a lot of this kind of work. So you've got some great allies, and I have a feeling that some of these intentions that you're setting will be fulfilled. And for people that want to find out more, where can they engage with the New York Mycological Society? Or maybe we should call it the New York Happy Mushroom Club, <laughs> make it not so intimidating. But where, where can people connect? Any which way you call us. Um, so if you want to become a member, obviously, that's the best way to access our lectures, our lecture database, because we record everything and our ID meetings. It's 20 bucks a year. And obviously, anybody can join. And if that's a hardship for someone, please reach out to me. I'm more than happy to help. But uh, we are very active on Facebook. I mean, we have a community of several thousand people that engage with us on Facebook. And, you know, there's many questions coming in every single day from identification to articles to more, more philosophical questions. We are active on Instagram. You can follow us on Instagram. We, are, we have two large iNaturalist projects that you can check out or contribute to if you happen to live in the New York State area. And then uh, that's pretty much it. Yes. Well, if you're in New York State, really, if you're anywhere, you're clearly having people from all over the country come to the meetings. Definitely check out the New York Mycological Society. And yes, don't be intimidated. I've gotten that similar feedback from people that they find out there's a local mycology club and they're a little intimidated to go in as a lone person into this group. But man, every mycological society out there just gets excited. If you're interested in mushrooms, they're excited. They want to bring you on the team. So definitely don't hesitate to get involved. And then we talked a lot about future plans and ideas uh, about the club and about Fundus. Are there any other future plans or research for you? Uh, and that can be specific or it can be general, you know, different big questions you want to look at, where you hope this work takes you, all that kind of thing. Well, okay, I'm going to use this question as an opportunity to, to talk about uh, the Fundus rare 10 West Coast challenge, because that's definitely something Yeah, I want to do more of, because it was so fun and, and it's a really interesting opportunity for conservation. So this rare 10 challenge was a fundus initiative where essentially with a group of mycologists, we've identified 10 rare and threatened fungi that need many, many more observations in order to you know help them get to a protected status. And we developed these amazingly beautiful brochures and descriptions. And then we pushed it out to the West Coast of fungal community during the pandemic. And we had no idea if people are going to get into it, if anybody's going to be excited by it and actually look for them. And uh, it was such a huge success. Uh, I mean, not only did we have 91 observations of the rare fungi, but we got hundreds of people looking. 
and we got major range extension for three of the species um, and so many cool observations for some of them that typically only get one or two observation a year. You know, suddenly we have 20 and it's just a thing that caught fire, so to speak. And it's just a really efficient way of generating data, but it's also just a great way of getting people excited about fungal conservation. Because normally when you say fungal conservation, people, you know, think it's, it's going to be boring. And this was not at all boring. It just was this sort of fabulous competition that brought out people's best competitive instincts. So one of the plans uh, going forward is to bring that kind of challenge to the East Coast. It's going to, I think, kick off in August. Uh, it's going to be 20 species and it's going to run for three years. Um, so keep your eyes peeled. We're also extending the West Coast challenge. It's initially was a six month pilot. It's not now also going to be three years and we're adding new species. So once again, keep a lookout for that. You know, seeing those challenges get traction and get excitement is definitely one of the things that gets me excited. And in terms of personal research, you know, I used to try and really understand the Russulas <laughs> and I'm still horribly failing at it. But one of these days I'm going to maybe, you know, my dream is to describe a new species and that might or might not happen. The other family of fungi that I'm increasingly interested in is the inner Cybaceae. And I want to do more research into that because you realize that you can't discover everything and you can't focus on everything, so you have to specialize a little bit. And then the other area I'm really, really passionate about is dung fungi, fungi growing on dung. Um, so that's definitely an area I want to keep pursuing. And I guess what was it about any of those mushrooms in particular, or maybe each one, what is it that attracted you maybe to the rushula or to the dung fungi? I mean, what was the appeal for you? Well, let's start with the dung fungi. First of all, you know, everybody goes like, ew, so that's already right. interesting. <laughs> you go like, yeah. you know, and I used to go like, ew. And then I did a seminar with uh, Professor Dr. Don Fister, and it was meant to be like, you know, the fungi of Maine or something. And it was really dry, and there was literally no fungi out there. And, we, and he said like, hey, so why don't you pick up some dung and look at that under the microscope? And my mind was blown. They're so amazingly beautiful. The spores are just fantastic. And there's just, I mean, they're, without any doubt, the most beautiful fungi in the world. And I was completely hooked. And obviously, I started, you know, incubating them at home, which is less disgusting than it sounds. And they're just so beautiful. And uh, I think anybody, you know, who starts looking at them will will get hooked as I did. So that's the dung fungi. And with the rustulas, it was literally everybody saying like, oh, my God, you're looking into that. That's too hard. And as soon as somebody says like, that's too hard, I'm going like, I'll give it a shake, you know. Why not? So, yeah. Answering the challenge of the Rushella. Well, I'm sure everyone listening is inspired by your work. Where can people connect with you? And especially if anyone's listening who wants to get deeper into these fields of, you know, at-home genetics or conservation, where's the best place for people to connect with you? Yeah, I want, you know, I wish I had a website or something. And the thing is, I actually have a <laughs> website, but it's for my job. So please don't go there. You know, like... I can give out my email. It's literally secretjacob at uh, gmail.com. Um, I have a profile on iNaturalist. I'm on Facebook. I have two Instagram accounts. One is called Dung Fungi. So if, if you look for Dung Fungi on Instagram, that's me. That's a great way to connect with me. So yeah, um, reach out to me any which way. I'm, I'm always super interested to hear from people. Well, I appreciate you being so open. And you just brought up an interesting question, which is how have mushrooms and fungi suffused to the rest of your life 
you know, is every now new brand strategy you're coming up with, let's put a mushroom in there. You know, how, how has it changed kind of some of the other aspects of your life? Definitely. Uh, well, the thing is, weirdly, I've been, uh, you know, approached by a couple of uh, brands in the in the psychedelic therapy space because there's a lot of activity there. And, you know, that might well be something I'm going to pursue professionally. But usually people just think I'm straight up mad. And, you know, and as soon as <laughs> I tell them what I do, they go like, oh, OK, you're weird. That's fine. Um, but it, it definitely has infused my life in many other ways. And I think the biggest by far is community. I think, you know, fungi ultimately for me are not just about some individuals documenting individual fungi, but it's very much about becoming part of this of mycelial network of clubs and online communities and Facebook groups and so on. So it's just given me so much connection to amazing, interesting, knowledgeable and generous people that, you know, I feel my life has been tremendously enriched, especially during the pandemic, you know. To know that you have this sort of community of people that are share that this common interest was so great. And I think that's what mushroom clubs are so fantastic. That's why they will never go out of fashion because they create community in a world where there's less and less community. So it's just a wonderful way of being with people in a way that's not restrictive, in a way that educates and, you know, entertains. So yeah, it's definitely been the community. When it's gets back to that idea of delineating between citizen science to community science. And I see that that's very much reflected in your ethos and how you approach this discipline of mycology and performing community sciences. It's something you do together, not one individual by themselves. Exactly. Yes. Fantastic. Well, before you leave us, I'll ask you the same questions that I like to ask all my guests. Uh, and the first one is sometimes the most difficult for people, and that is, a mushroom or a fungus that you love and why it does not have the pressure of a favorite. It could be one you love to eat, look at, has beautiful spores, whatever it is, uh, a mushroom or fungus you love and why that you want to share with us. Okay. I want to say Sporomiella calomera because that's a dung fungus and it's extremely rare. It has 10 cells and the spores are extremely long. And it's just stunning. It looks like a really weird larva. It's, uh, you know, with 10 different segments. You should check it out. It's so cool. And uh, seeing it for the first time just completely blew my mind. I know it's not the kind of fungus you normally get in response to this question, but here's to all the sporomiellas. The sporomiellas are just as good as every other fungus. And that's exactly why I asked that question is we'll all learn something about a fungus that may be underappreciated or that we never heard of. So thank you for that answer. Uh, and then the next question is much broader and you can go any direction you like, but this intimate relationship you've developed with fungi, what has that given to you? And that can be perspectives, things they've taught you, new spiritual understandings, whatever it is. What has that relationship given to you? That's a wonderful question and so many answers. I mean, you know, as, as you've heard, it's given me a complete redefinition of what I'm capable of. I, I can be a, a scientist and I can contribute to science. It's educated me in so many ways. My brain has expanded. It's connected me to a wonderful community of people. And it's just given me a bit of a sense of purpose. You know, whenever you put a new mushroom on the map or whatever, uh, whenever you find something really rare and you sort of document it for science, that feels like a valuable, purposeful thing to do. And also, they've just sort of kind of blown my mind with their beauty and strangeness. You know, and we all need a little bit more beauty and more strangeness in our lives. Um, so, yeah, I, I really feel they've, they've added a lot to my life. 
yeah, it sounds like in so many ways they've brought beautiful things into your life, strange things into your life. So what a great, what a great insight. And then the final question is, as we discover more and more about mushrooms and fungi in the coming years and decades, you know, we're just kind of at this tip of the iceberg when it comes to fungal discovery. How do you hope our society is changed for the better as we learn more about and develop closer relationships with the fungi all around us? I think the biggest thing that I'm personally hoping for is that more people will understand how valuable fungi are and how much they contribute to the environment and that people will be much more careful about developing, you know, about adding developments and, you know, and basically instead of nature. So more careful uh, building in terms of less sprawl, more preserving of natural habitats. And the other thing is like stop logging you know, our old trees and stop putting so much nitrogen out into the atmosphere. I mean, if we can be more appreciative of fungi and their role in the world, we would be doing less of some of that other stuff. Those are really concrete things that we need to do to not just help protect fungi, but frankly, the whole ecosystems with which they're connected. So yeah, if we appreciate fungi more, that has consequences. And I hope people understand um, and work on those consequences. I sincerely hope that happens, that understanding mushrooms and fungi wakes people up and makes people understand what's happening ecologically and gives people a greater appreciation. I think you just elucidated that beautifully. Well, Sigrid, thank you so much for coming on the Mushroom Hour and sharing your work in a really approachable and authentic way that gets us all excited to start our own projects. I think it's no mystery why you'd be put at the head of an organization to help promote this education to the masses. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your time with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for the honor. This was fabulous. I so appreciate it. Thank you.